It's good to see everybody and good to be back. It's been a little bit. Jeez, what? It's been like four? Three? Well, three weeks since the Christmas party. Five, four weeks since studying Matthew, right? So Matthew chapter 10, where we left off, where we will pick back up, Matthew 10, 24. But let's kind of remind ourselves, reorient ourselves with where we're at. So just what is Matthew, like the book of Matthew? What's the theme of Matthew? Ian. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. So Matthew is one of the gospels in the Bible. One of the records of the life of Jesus. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four gospel writers giving us the history of the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. His life on earth, where he went about, what he did, his activities, his teaching. And all of them have a unique kind of emphasis. So John the emphasis is very much on Jesus being the Son of God, the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. Very folk, all of them talk about the deity of Christ. John, though, especially focused on it. Luke focusing on Jesus as the Son of Man and a lot of uh, emphasis on the humanity of Christ. Mark focusing very heavily on the servanthood of Jesus Christ. That being God, even though he's perfect, holy God, worthy of our service and our worship mark 10 45 says even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many matthew just like ian told us very focused on emphasizing jesus christ as king it starts at the very beginning of matthew where it goes through the lineage of jesus christ from david to the birth of Christ, showing the kingly descent, well, really from Abraham through David on down to the birth of Christ, showing the kingly descent that Jesus is the long-awaited king of Israel. And the pattern that we see as we move through Matthew, you'll get historical narrative, which is important because through the historical narrative, you get to learn a lot about who Jesus is, his history, the way he lived, and the way he interacted and ministered to people. You see a lot of his power demonstrated, validating his divinity, that he's God. He's got power over spirits. He's got power over disease. He's got power over nature. We see all that laid out for us in the historical narratives uh, section of Matthew. But then Matthew will break off like he did the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, into deep records of the teachings of Christ. And we're in the middle of another one of those as we're in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 comes on the heels of, uh, you got chapters 8 and 9 where Jesus is spending a lot of time in the regions of Galilee, Capernaum, crosses over a little bit across the Jordan, but going around ministering to people, being followed by large crowds, throngs of people who are hearing about his miracles and hearing about his power and wanting to oftentimes just be healed, be impacted by it. And so on the heels of that ministry throughout Capernaum and Galilee, chapter 10 is another one of those excursions into deep, deep teaching of Jesus. And what he's done in chapter 10, where we're at, is he's gathered his apostles to himself. He's gathered his apostles to himself. And verses 1 through 4 is where we get that list of apostles that he's called to himself 
to himself and he's getting ready to send them out and he's giving them instruction throughout chapter 10. What we saw in verses one through four is Jesus, his group of apostles was made up of a highly diverse group of men. And many of them, in fact, most of them would not be who the world would call the powerful and the elite. Jesus very often, just as the Bible promises us God repeatedly does, will choose the the weak things of the world, the things that the world would even call despised or or foolish. And um, this is the group that Jesus is going to send out as his representatives. And he's giving them instructions for this mission. And the instructions, while he's giving them to the immediate 12 that he's talking to, are completely relevant for us. What's our job today as the church? What's our job? Anybody? Owen? Spread the gospel. Spread the gospel. It's the, when we get to the end of Matthew, the Great Commission, right? Go out into all the nations, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20 making disciples of all the nations, nations, teaching them to the, obey the commandments of the Lord. It's hard for me to talk right now. They put this like crown thing in my mouth, like my teeth bounce around in a weird way. Um, so if I talk funny, it's like... I'm like a king with a crown? Yeah, no, wrong kind of crown. Um, but he's given, the, the instruction he's given to them as they go out is very applicable to us as we continue this mission as the church of sharing the good news, sharing the gospel, creating disciples, or making disciples throughout the nation. So verses 5 to 15, he gives them the instruction, trust in God's provision. Um, Minister freely. This isn't about them. This isn't about what they can gain. This isn't about um, them uh, using the gospel uh, for their own purposes or to make money. And so trust in God, minister freely, and he tells them how to handle those who accept and reject them. And then in verses 16 to 23, which is where we actually left off last time, is Jesus warning them about persecution. And if you'll remember, um, it's a little bit remarkable that just the numerous directions that Jesus tells us persecution is going to come from. Some of them less surprising, some of them very surprising from from authorities in the government, from religious authorities, persecution comes from even within the family, those who we should be closest to and have the closest relationships with. Um, Persecution comes from all different angles at those who would be ministers of Christ. And his instruction to us is to persevere, to persevere. And that really brings us to where we're at tonight. Verses 24 to 31 is what we'll look at. And here Jesus tells us, despite opposition, despite this persecution, we should fear our father above men. Despite opposition, fear our father above men. But we'll talk about what that fear means, because when we hear fear, we automatically think of negative connotations. But this isn't a father who we should simply respect and fear and revere. But we'll see also that this is a father that cares deeply, intimately about us and cares for us in ways that even the best earthly fathers 
cannot. Let's read these verses, verses 24 to 31. We'll go back after we read them and we'll, we'll break it into three sections and I'll give it to you again as we go. But uh, section one, if they hated Jesus, they will hate you. Section two, fear God, not men. Section three, your father cares. That's the three sections we'll look at. But let's read these verses 24 to 31 together. Jesus tells them, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not let those who kill the or do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. This first section here, if they hated Jesus, they will hate you. This is a point that Jesus and the apostles, the New Testament writers, make clear over and over again in the New Testament. Um, there's a lot that I love about the Bible, but one of the things that I really love about the Bible is just how honest God is with us about life, the realities that we face as people. It doesn't sugarcoat things. It doesn't try to hide the fact that difficulties will be very real in our lives. It doesn't, um, it, it doesn't shy away from the difficult realities we face. Instead, the Bible brings them to the surface often and teaches us how to handle those things and how to rely on God in the midst of those things and how to handle these things in a way that um, honor, honors God. Isn't that comforting to you? To me, it's very comforting. It would not be comforting at all if I opened up the pages of the Bible and everything just seemed all perfect and rosy all the time because that's not the life I experience. It's much more comforting when I experience the reality of life, go to scripture and God says, yeah, that's right. This is how it's going to be. And now here's how you trust in me and live victoriously through this. That's what Jesus does time and time again. The gospel writers do time and time again when it comes to persecution and the opposition that we face living out this great commission that Jesus has given to us. Jesus here makes this argument from the greater to the lesser. Jesus describes himself in verses 24 and 25 that he is um, the teacher. He is the master. He is, our, he is our head. He is our Lord. We are his disciples. We are his slaves. And so our goal, like it says in verse 25, our goal is to be like Christ. 
that he is our objective. He is what we strive for, not in the sense of becoming deity. You will never become God, but in the sense of being like him in righteousness and obedience to the Father. And he will prom he promises us that one day, as followers of his, we will get there. That's the promise you look at Romans chapter 8, verses like 28 to 32. That's the promise that Paul's rejoicing in there when he says all things work together for the good of those who love God. It's the promise that we will one day be like our master. We will one day be like our teacher. That um, while we struggle with sin, as long as we walk on this earth, that um, one day our sanctification will be complete in glorification and we will be like Christ. That's our objective. That's our goal. That's what we strive for. But at no point will we be above the master. At no point will we be above the teacher or above Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is saying here is if they don't respect Jesus as the son of God, how much less do you think they're going to respect his followers? It, G, think about what sin is. Think about what blasphemy is and rebellion is. It is the creation rejecting the creator. Rejecting Christ, rejecting God, takes just an unbelievably insane amount of irrational sin and pride. If people in the depths of their depravity reject the teacher and the master, revile him, persecuted Christ. If they've called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Does that make sense? So Beelzebul, there's a little bit, a lot of debate on what exactly that means, but no matter which route you go, you kind of get to the same answer. So like you got some people who say, well, it goes back to some um, Pharisee God the, the Philistines had, who was a really bad God and like looked at as just a false God, an idol in the time of Israel. And so if they call Jesus a false God, then they're gonna, they're gonna malign you as well. Or some people say, well, Beelzebul is just one of the, like the worst demons. Other people say, well, he's Satan himself. Uh, it doesn't matter, really. Like, you get to the same answer. If they call Jesus Satan or one of the worst demons out there, then if you're his follower, if you belong to him, if you're a member of his household, it shouldn't surprise you at all that they're rejecting you. Think back even to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Rejoice when people persecute you for the kingdom of God. Because they always persecuted the people of God. They persecuted the prophets in the Old Testament. They persecuted Jesus Christ. If you read through the history of the New Testament, they persecuted the apostles. It should not surprise us as followers of Christ today when we face persecution. In fact, we should expect it. We should anticipate it. Jesus is telling us right here, it's going to happen. Do not be surprised. For me, again, that really helps when it comes to uh, persecution and trials and difficulty. The fact that these aren't things that surprise God. These aren't things that derail his plan. 
He's preparing us for the worst. He's preparing us for battle. That's what you do when somebody's going into a difficult circumstance. If you're getting them prepared, you have to awaken them to the reality of what they're about to go into. The key is here, how do we respond? It's a cliche thing that you hear in life that is so true. Sometimes I have a love-hate relationship with cliches. Like, I'm like, ah, I don't like cliches. But then again, I use them like nonstop. They become cliches for a reason, right? Like people repeat this for a reason because it's pretty true. So it's a cliche. It's not what happens to you in life, but it's how you respond to it, right? Like we're all going to face difficulty and challenges. It's how you respond to it. Persecution. It's going to happen. The key is how do we respond? And the answer to that is fear God, not men. Fear God, not men. And the way you do that, what Jesus is going to kind of start introducing us to here, is you keep a perspective on who God is and who people are. You keep a perspective on those two things that are rooted in truth. That are rooted in truth. Don't forget who God is. Don't forget who people are. Uh, Verses 26 to 28, Jesus says, Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is telling us, look, obey God, not men. The apostles had to live this out. Have have you read Acts? You go read Acts and you see how the apostles had to live this out. In fact, Acts 5.29, right at the very beginning, the authorities are persecuting Peter, the apostles, saying, hey, you stop preaching the name of Christ. You stop preaching that Jesus has been resurrected and is Lord. And what's the response of the apostles in Acts 5.29? Hey, we've got to obey God rather than men. We've got to obey God rather than men. So this fearing God, not men, it manifests itself here. The first way that Jesus tells us it manifests itself or that we should carry it out is continue to proclaim the truth. Continue to proclaim a truth, the truth. Um, he says, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what is whispered in your ear, proclaim it upon the rooftops. Hey, you keep speaking the truth from the rooftops. Like you don't go back and um, let this make you ashamed of the gospel or something you shrink back, shrink back from. But you speak this in the light. You speak it where people can see it, where people can hear you, where you can make Christ known. You proclaim it from the rooftops. You you let everybody know who Jesus Christ is. Because the truth, the truth will prevail. Verse 26 here, there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. 
Who do you think wins? Ultimately, who do you think wins in this battle between God's kingdom and the lies of Satan? Yeah. We know the outcome. We know the outcome. We know that, sure, there appears in the moment to often be the wicked prospering. And we know that in the moment, God, had, in his wisdom, in ways that we don't understand, has allowed Satan a tremendous amount of influence in this world. That Satan is the prince of the air, the prince of this age. We know that. But we also know that this system comes crumbling down in an instant. In an instant. I mean, one of the things, hopefully, that like a silver lining, perhaps, in terms of this whole COVID thing, is like it has shown us how vulnerable this world is, right? Like the world literally shut down for like a month in 2020, and it didn't have any effect other than mess everything up, right? Like the, this system, this world, God can bring it down in an instant. You look at Psalms, talks about those who, the, the nations, the kings that um, gather together, gather their power and rage at God. God laughs at them. God scoffs at them. This world seems mighty and powerful in the moment, but God can bring it all down in an instant. He created it with the word. He can bring it down with the word. God will prevail. His truth will prevail. When it's all said and done, every knee will bow before Jesus Christ. His kingship, his lordship will reign supreme. His kingdom will be everlasting. One of the things I love so much about the book of Daniel is just its demonstration of God's power over human history. Also, fear God, not simply because he's the winner and his truth will prevail, but when it comes to your life, we talked about this last time even, what can the world take away from you? Your physical well-being, right? The world can kill you. The world can take away your things. Can the world touch your soul? No. No. If you have just an amazing, like you've got amazing DNA, you exercise, you eat right, everything goes perfect for you, how long is your body going to last? 80, maybe 90 years. 80, maybe 90 years. Maybe you'll squeak out 100, right? But like, that's if everything goes perfect. 100 years. How long is your soul going to last? Forever. Eternity. What is any number divided by infinity? I'm not good at math. I, the calculator, I think, just errors out, right? It's just it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you put your 100 years of your body, if you're lucky, up against 
the infinity of your soul, it's nothing. It's nothing. God says, do not fear. Jesus says, God says, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. It's weird to talk about fear with God sometimes because we so often rightly talk about the fact that God is love, that God's our loving heavenly father. But the reason we talk about fear when it comes to God is because God is immeasurably, immeasurably powerful, infinitely great, infinitely powerful, infinitely deserving of all our respect and obedience. And yes, our God is a God of love and also a God of wrath who does carry out justice and punish sin. Don't fear those who can just touch your body, but fear the him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. hell. Do, you, do you see what this is? We start to fear men over God when our sense of who God is and who people are gets out of whack. If you're fearing people over God, is your vision of truth lined up? No. If you're fearing men over God, you've gotten caught up in an unbiblical way of thinking about who God is versus who people are. And it's hard, right? It's hard not to fear people because we interact with them in such a physical way every single day. And is it pleasant to have your body destroyed? Is it pleasant to have your things taken away from you? No, that pain is real. And that pain is immediate. Our human minds have just a tendency. We emphasize the immediate over the long term, right? That's why people have trouble saving money and investing because, hey, I can have a PlayStation now or I can invest it, you know, like maybe like in 15, 20 years. Enjoy it. No, people like things now, right? Like it's the immediate. Like that's what we get caught up in. And so we fear people because our vision of who God is and our understanding of who God is and our vision and understanding of who people are gets out of whack. I got this book here. Book recommendation I got to make. This is a good one. When people are big and God is small. We sell it in the bookstore, I believe. I know I bought this at the Countryside Bookstore years ago. I think we sell it at our bookstore here because when Dusty was like, hey, Brandon, what book should we sell in the bookstore? Boom, like one of the first ones that I threw down on the list. Overcoming peer pressure, codependency, and the fear of man. So you know what peer pressure is. I don't need to explain that. Codependency, that's like where, hey, you know, I, I, this is a bad example, but I'm sorry. It's just the first one that comes to mind. Like a uh, uh, high school teenage girl who can't feel worthy or like happy unless she has a boy that likes her kind of thing. She's codependent, you know, or like guys, guys who are like, hey, I have to have a girlfriend and I have to impress girls. Otherwise, I have no self-esteem. That's codependency there. We're like, instead of you deriving your value and your esteem from who you are in Jesus Christ and God, you need the things of this world, the people of this world to, to make you feel valuable. Codependency. So overcoming peer pressure, codependency, and the fear of man. Um, good book. I highly recommend it, especially as a young person. 
look, fearing people over God, that's a problem for any age, I promise. But you feel it, right? You feel it as a young person. It's uh, you're, you're in this weird stage, social life. You're trying to figure out who you are. Like, what are you into? Like, who am I friends with? What circle of friends do I have? Hey, this friend doesn't seem to like me as much as they used to. This friend doesn't like me anymore. This guy doesn't like me. This girl doesn't. You know, there's all this stuff going on. It's a weird time. It's a great book, though. Just keeping in proper perspective, man and God, so that instead of giving this world our best, we give God our best. Proverbs 29.25, really good verse here that I I, I laughed that I had to look because I was going to say I memorized it, but um, I I forget where it's at sometimes. Proverbs uh, 29.25, the fear of man brings a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. The fear of man brings a snare. What, what Jesus is saying at, what, saying, what Proverbs 9, 29 says here, is that when we fear men above God, we start to compromise on things. We start to compromise on the gospel. Persecution turns us away from living obediently to God in the way that he's called us to live. It turns us away from being the ambassadors of Christ that he calls us to be. Fear God over men. So fear your father, but at the same time recognize he cares for you. He cares for you deeply. And if you've been with us through Matthew, you know this already. The Sermon on the Mount was heavily focused at times on how much your father cares for you. That don't worry about the things of this world, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And the things of this world, he takes care of those things. He knows that you need them. What kind of uh, father, when their kid asks for uh, a fish, gets a snake? Or asks for bread, gets rocks? Your father cares. Our last section here, verses 29 to 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Now we go the opposite. So we had the argument from the greater to the lesser, that if they persecuted Christ, they're going to want to persecute you as well. Now we go the opposite direction, from the lesser to the greater. If God is so intimately equated, intimately um, acquainted with something as seemingly worthless as sparrows and so involved in their lives, how much more do you think he's involved with your life? How much more do you think he's acquainted with your life? God God is cognizant, is aware of the smallest details of his creation. When we look at this illustration that Jesus gives here, sparrows, like sparrow in first century times, that was 
like one of the most worthless things. Like, okay, if we've got to feed the poor people, we'll go to the sparrows because there's just infinite supply of them. They're nearly worthless. It, we can give them as many as they need. Two sparrows for a cent. Like the cheapest monetary a penny, that's what you're getting two sparrows for. It's like almost nothing. Basically free. Yet something that is as seemingly worthless as this, as seemingly meaningless as this, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. God is aware of it all. God is sovereign over it all. Now, one question that comes into mind here is like, okay, well, then why do they fall to the ground, right? Like, if God's so acquainted with what's going on in their lives, why is he letting them die? Look, why does God allow bad things to happen in this world? That's like a whole nother infinite discussion we could have, right? And there's lots of great discussion that can be had there. But think about Jesus Christ. Did Jesus Christ suffer? Did Jesus Christ suffer from evil in this world and the evil actions and intentions of this world? Absolutely. Yet that suffering was God's perfect plan for redeeming his people. Look at Genesis 50, 20. When Joseph is confronted by his brothers, they're scared that he's finally going to get vengeance on them for what they did to him. And he says, hey, look, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And ultimately, Job, when he's trying to figure out why all the evil and harm has taken place in his life, instead of getting an answer to that as to why bad things happen, instead, God just gives Job a better vision on who he is, his holiness, his power, his wisdom, his might. And when Job sees that more clearly, he's like, hey, I don't need an answer on the rest anymore. Look, we don't really have time tonight to get into all the discussions of why. Why doesn't the Father just stop this then? We don't have the time to get into that. And ultimately, we can only answer that to a far enough or a certain extent. But what we do know confidently from Scripture is that our God, His plans, what He allows, they're for His glory, even our good, our eternal good and sanctification, and he carries them out in infinite love and wisdom and is perfectly holy the whole time, never the source of sin. And God is acquainted with every detail. This infinite love, this infinite wisdom, this infinite holiness is engaged with every detail of what happens on this life and even in your life. But the very, Jesus says, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. You see what Jesus is trying to say there? There's no aspect of your life that he doesn't know perfectly well. Is that a pretty amazing thought to you? It's pretty amazing. I mean, what if, I don't know, whoever your favorite, um, human earthly person is right now like whoever you are most impressed with in this world athlete teacher politician musician whatever like if that person was obsessed with that knowing every detail of your life be kind of weird right like you'd be kind of like wow that's it's kind of wild here's the god of the universe 
who thinks deeply on the smallest details and knows every detail of your life. That's remarkable. You really can't get your mind around it. You really can't get your mind around it. Psalm 1. Um, God contrasts the godly and the wicked in Psalm 1. And, you know, he, he just says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. You kind of have a world versus God's truth contrast there, right? Your delight's not in this world. You're not just consumed with the things of this world, but it's in the law of the Lord. And on God's law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. But here's what I'm getting at. Verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows the way of those who belong to him. Is it 2 Chronicles 16.9? I didn't write this one down. Just came to mind. So sorry if it's not the right one. Y'all can look it up if it's not the right one. Um, 2 Chronicles, I think, 16.9 talks about how the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro on the earth that he can strongly support those whose hearts are fully his. That was the right one? All right, thanks. Yeah, like, uh, just don't lose sight of when you're trying to keep a proper perspective on who God is versus who people are and the fear we should have and the respect we should have, the dedication we could have. Don't lose sight of the reality that when life gets scary, when life is full of trouble, persecution, trials, difficulties, God has every bit of his attention, which is infinite, on you and your circumstances. You, you, you can't find a place in life where you've wandered outside the realms of his sovereignty or where you've taken yourself out of his control. He says in verse 31, I, I kind of get the, I don't know, like maybe kind of Jesus said this with a chuckle, right? In verse 31, so do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows, all right? Like these the sparrows are just minimal value here on earth. And God cares and looks to and is acquainted with the ways of every single one of them. And you are worth more than many, many sparrows. That's the beauty of the gospel, right? The gospel that, okay, we're, we choose as God's creation, we choose in our sinfulness to rebel against the creator. We choose to disobey him. We choose to go our own way. And we, in our sin, separate us from God. Yet the gospel says that we aren't simply forgiven of that sin. We are forgiven of that sin, but it doesn't stop there. What if God just forgave your sin? Would he be worth worthy of 
eternal worship for that? Yeah, I would say so. If he pardoned your sin and pardoned your soul from eternal judgment, eternal damnation, and forgave you, yeah. But the gospel doesn't start there. stop there. You're forgiven and you're reconciled to God and you're put into this intimate relationship of father and child. The gospel is a remarkable, remarkable thing. How do we apply this? First thing I would say, let God be big and people small. Again, I highly recommend this book. It's a good one. It's one you need to read. And it's not difficult to read. It's not particularly long. And uh, reading's really good for you. So read. Um, if you play video games 30 minutes a day or an hour a day, then cut it in half and spend the other half reading that book. Um, really good book. Just helping you root your thinking into biblical truth so you keep your perspective on who God is versus who people. Because it's a fight, right? Like you're surrounded by people every day. So it's a fight for that peer pressure for that codependency, for that fear of man. It's a fight for that to not become big. Really, any kind of worldly thinking, ungodly thinking, it's a fight not to think that way because you're just inundated with it nonstop from every angle. And so if you're going to think biblically, you've got to daily be diving into God's word and more than daily throughout the day, be consistently through meditation, through scripture memory, taking yourself back to the word of God because it's a battle. It's a fight. And if you're not fighting to think in a biblical way, then you're not going to. The world will win. People will get big. God will get small. But instead, if you want to carry out the Great Commission, these apostles, they're getting ready to go out into a hostile world. Remember, Jesus told them, hey, you're going out as sheep in the midst of wolves. You're going out as sheep in the midst of wolves. If they don't have their perspective right, they're going to get devoured. The second thing I would emphasize here from this passage is trust your father's care. Trust your father's care. That is the beauty of the gospel. That's why you really need to Go back and meditate on the gospel all the time. When you don't, when, when you when you got that low self-esteem going, because the world's turned on you. Maybe it's not just heavy persecution, but it's just like, you know, relationships are a struggle. Things in life are a struggle, and your your self-esteem's down. You're not feeling good about just where you're at. Go back to the gospel and remember. Wait a second. In the gospel, God has taken me and made me his child. And just think through all the things that Jesus teaches us about what it means to be a child of God, his care for us. The things of this world, he takes care of those things. Our focus is on serving him, on carrying out the Great Commission, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. We'll continue to build on this. We've got plenty more to go here in Matthew chapter 10 when it comes to just 
our relationship to God, our relationship to this world, how we minister to this world. But hopefully this was helpful, and uh, we'll pray. Lord, we do thank you so much that as we face the difficulties of this world, we can do so with the truth that you've given us, that we can take what we see, what we feel, what we experience, and we can filter those things through the truth that you've given us so that we can think rightly and um, so that we can handle these things in a way that's honoring to you. And I just pray that um, you would help us, Lord, if, to, to just um, cling on to who we are in you, to your love for us, your care for us, that we would rejoice in that and that um, just that love and gratitude for you to you would overflow in everything we do. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.